Welcome to the RCC Points of View podcast, brought to you by the Scottish Residential Childcare Workers Online Forum. In this episode, I speak to a student social worker who has lived the experience of the care system. During the interview, we discuss my guest views in relation to his own journey within the care system, what makes a good care worker, the care review, physical restraint and activism, alongside looking at my guest's hopes for the sector. I found this interview to be interesting and inspiring, and I'm sure you will too. So without further ado, please welcome David Krim. Hi David, thank you very much for taking part in the podcast. So first question is, can you tell me a wee bit about yourself and what your connection is to residential childcare? Thanks for having me on, Joe. Um, okay. So my name's David Grimm. I am 33 years young. Now, um, I'm, so I'm a student in uh, Glasgow Cali Uni. I'm just starting my third year in a social work bachelor's degree. Um, my connection to residential care is that I was in care. Um, I got taken into care at the age of 14 and a half, because at that age, a half is still important, um, on Easter weekend. Um, so that was Easter 2004. Um, so And from then, I've been living in care or working with organisations to try and better the care experienced landscape, as it were. Um, yeah, so that's my that's my direct connection. And now I'm studying social work because I want to go back in and try and be a force, a positive force for young people in care because obviously social work and care is such a t- um, strenuous relationship as it is. I just want to try and be that, that social worker that makes a young person feel good about their life. Yeah, that's really kind of admirable. And I suppose kind of thinking back to, you were 14 and a half at Easter weekend. Can you kind of describe how it felt walking through the children's unit, as it probably was called at that point in time, um, for the for the first time? What were you kind of? So I had already been. So um, so just 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 to explain, I my care wasn't an instant thing. It wasn't an emergency extraction. It was a planned thing, and mm. I'd worked with a, a local community officer who had taken me along to visit. Um, uh-huh. but the Easter weekend entry still felt like my first time, if I'm honest, and it was terrifying, absolutely terrifying. Although, right. so, so I moved into the West End of Glasgow, right? So I'd come from the schemes into the West End that was massive as it was. I was moving into a posh neighborhood, um, and I went through these doors of this like Victorian esque building. And there was this bunch of other lads just like me um, who were all stood around with their arms crossed waiting for the new guy. And like, they looked like, it looked like walking in a little gang's den, Uh, but they were lovely, lovely, lovely lads who were just like, look, we get that it's scary. You'll be fine. Like that's your room over there. And they pointed me to this little back corner of the building that was terrifying, dark and dingy. Um, But it was grand. It was nice. And the staff were all welcoming and stuff, but, all of the niceness didn't really take away the fear, you know, that whole thing of you got the transition of going into a new place. It's a whole new environment coming from the schemes into a posh neighborhood. 
you don't know how to react. So yeah, that's a long way of saying I was scared out of my mind, Joe. <laughs> yeah, I, I, see, even if I think back to the posh neighbourhood, how did the neighbours um, kind of, I suppose, ex- accept the kids for the children's house and the staff? Well, yeah, no, that was a funny one. That that was a mixed bag, to be honest. So mm-hmm. we had some neighbours above us and in the next close who were really nice and would do st- simple stuff like drop off old comics and stuff for the kids, like mm-hmm. the kids, uh, for the teenagers. Um, even though they hadn't met us really, they knew us because we hung around the skate park in the West End. Um, and they knew that we were there because they were active members of the community. But other members who knew where the home was had chosen not to take anything to do with us because they were still working on old stigmas and stereotypes of what children in care were um there was this one time after i had left that home and moved to another one i came back to visit and there had been a fire in the landing above because the home was built into a close i can say this now because the home's been closed and transferred um and the neighbors instantly blamed the kids in the home for setting the fires but what they didn't realize was that the fire brigade only knew about the fire because the kids had phoned the fire brigade. Right. Um, and what had actually happened was some student had left her candles up on, on a windy day and her right. um, curtains had caught fire. But that was just showing the example of a split bag where the neighbors were really nice and sound and were like, no, the kids didn't do that. But the same neighbor, same building it was, there was neighbors that were instantly anything that went wrong was the fault of us in the home. So, ah, mm-hmm. so in terms of stigma, you, I know just knowing you quite well in terms of your work that you've done, you know, in terms of when you've been in care and, you know, since your time leaving care, you've been quite actively involved in terms of challenging impression, challenging stigma. What's your most memorable piece of work that you've done in your time? If it's all right, I've got two. Of course. Okay. Oh, of course. <laughs> so one that I was a bit of a background player in and a bit of um not as actively involved, but still involved, was the law change around the um, Children and Young Persons Act 2014. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I was involved with Who Cares Scotland quite a lot of the time. And obviously other companies like Aberlour and stuff were involved in that. But the work mm-hmm. that we did and the 21 young people from Who Cares that were involved that was a huge deal for for our lives because it was that whole thing of well you had to leave care no so sorry not long before the children and young people's act we'd had the sweet 16 report that said you shouldn't leave care until 18 minimum mm-hmm. um but kids were still being thrown out i shouldn't say kids in case anyone's li- any people with care experience are listening care experience people were being thrown out at 16 still and put into b&bs and homeless accommodation what after this government-led reported said we shouldn't be um and some of the care experience people who cares were like i'm sick of this and then they don't get any support after 2021 20, or 25 depending on discretion and then i remember duncan coming up to us and saying if you could stay involved because who cares at, the, at that time was funded in a similar manner young people and care experience people there couldn't stay involved after a certain age oh. but who cares um so he'd come up to us a few of us and he'd be like would you want to stay involved here after the, the age cap and we were all like yeah 
we would. And like, do you think it's beneficial for us to write to the government and get them to come and talk to us? So there was 21 of us, as I say, who wrote a letter to um, Scottish Parliament at the time. And a bunch of their ministers came out to us. Instead of us having to go and give evidence to them, they came to Who Cares Scotland and we gave evidence on what it was like to come into care, what it was like being living there and what it was like aftercare. So, yeah, so that was a big deal. And then obviously the Children and Young Persons Act was ratified and brought into law. And it meant now the young people still currently in care can get support up to the 21 and stuff, hmm. which is good. That, um, that yep. On you go, sorry. On you go. No, I was just going to say that, you know, an amazing thing to be part of for, for the start and how you guys were really, you know, you know, the driving force to, to, you know, to, to write the letter to, Essentially, the kind of like activists who you were were successful in their, their approach. Thank you. That's man. that's huge, you know, and to take that into your professional life now. And it, you were saying there's another. Oh uh, yeah, the other one's a bit lesser. Um, so when I was younger, I think I was it was 2009, so I was like just turning 20, and I was the current, I was the chair of the Who Cares board at the time. And we were going through um, through a specific campaign at Who Cares. I don't know, maybe you came across this, was the Challenge and Stigma campaign. Did you see? Yeah. Um, is, that, is, that, is that the one that was like kind of some media um, like photographs with people holding pet animals? Yes, that was the one, yeah. Uh-huh, aye, uh-huh. And stuff, yeah. Dogs, aye, uh-huh. Yeah, dogs. Yeah. yeah, that was a few of my friends, actually, and we, we used to slag them rotten for it. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, it was good. Um, so that was the challenge of stigma, and the whole idea was around stigma of care experience people because it's still, still is now and was even more rife then, I think, although I've been out a while, so it's probably just as rife. But the idea was challenge stigma, um, challenge the way scotland itself works with care experience people because we were seen as the leaders of the world really and we were still having a lot of young people saying they were being bullied and they were being beaten up and they were um self um stigmatizing as well so that was that whole thing but part of that came this thing around police checks you know how um in care if you want to stay with friends you need to get police checks and all of that um and in, in order to challenge that we had a trek to Nepal, to the Himalaya mountains. And what we did is we worked with the local authorities. Um, and we think we took, I think there was 20 staff members went and including people like um, Kathy Jameson and stuff. Yeah. Um, there was quite high, quite high, highly known people came to challenge the stigma. Um, and I think we took 30 care experience people who were currently in care which was amazing but one of the proudest moments for me was that that whole thing was a whole ordeal by the way joe like going because i'd never gone to school right sorry i'm ta- going on a tangent here i'd never right? really gone to school and it was that whole thing of scottish kid not appreciating what they've got um and then i went there and it was kids as young as three climbing across mountains to get to school and i was like oh my god total total breakdown <laughs> and I, I think they said there was six classes and there was a hundred children per class um and only uh, two teachers per class i was like okay um but one of the things was one of the schools didn't have running water um and myself and it, w- it was heather at the time who was the boss of who cares 
we made a joint decision to put running water into the school, um, which hadn't been part of the trip, you know, that hadn't been any of the intention, but that was a nice, so that trip in itself brought around the whole thing of giving kids their first trip away from Scotland, taking them to somewhere that nobody really, well, lots of people go, but not really, it's not a typical holiday, um, challenging the system back here, but also allowing uh, an another trip the next year to put in running water to a school, so... That was yeah. something I'm, I'm always very I, proud of. Interestingly, when I, I previously worked for North Ayrshire as, uh, as an assistant manager, yeah, and my, the guy that was my line manager, um, you know, you know, mind me mentioning his name, Paul. Yeah, Paul Murray was on that trip. Yeah, he was with and me. He's, he's got a picture on his wall of you and you're maybe a young guy, obviously minus the goatee. Yeah, uh, you know, and I always knew I'd, I'd never said to you, but you know, that Paul, hey, that picture. Pride of place. And there's another, another couple of young people that I know you'll know. I'll no mention their names in case you don't Aye, of course, of course. You know, yeah. But you, you'll know who they are. We can have a wee chat about that you know, at a later date. But uh, it looked fantastic. I have oh, to that. say. And, and Paul's memories of that, you know, he really enjoyed it as well. And he's a, he's an outdoorsy kind of guy, you know. Yeah. Um, but no, that that sounds amazing. So, and what did, see, see the experiences. How did that help you in terms of your, your, your current position? Where you are just now, you know, in terms of your 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 at university, you're in third year. Yeah, um, I do. I do think that was part of it. So before I came back to education, um, so I came back to education 2019, and I went to college before hitting uni, and before that, I was I was doing nothing for a few years. You know, that taking the odd job, floating around, just being like, oh, I don't really care what's happening. But then, obviously, you can only do that for so long, you get fed up. And when I was trying to think of what I wanted to go back to education and do, everything came back to care. Everything came back to social work type roles. And I think specifically those trips are part of where my passion comes from for care and for wanting to make a change. And um, in fact, I think they've been instrumental in pushing me towards the, the work I did with the Care Review, the work I did with Life Changes Trust, and all the other organizations I've been involved with was seeing, I don't, I don't even know where half the care experience people I went to Nepal with are now, but I know some of them have done really well with themselves. So it's that seeing that change has pushed me to keep the passion going, I think. And I think if I hadn't done stuff like those trips or been involved with the work I've been involved with, I wouldn't have done social work as a course. In fact, I think I would have gone back and done science. So right okay yeah. and, and see in terms of qualifications because you, you mentioned you when you you know school i'm getting the, the impression that school was in a great place for you you know and now what's your position in respect to qualifications as a you know a future social worker do you think they're important okay 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 um this is always yes and no so okay. with re respect to the level nine qualification that the government are pushing for, I think that's too much of a demand. Okay. I think there's workers that I've come across who are incredible, you know, and they've not even got their high school GCSEs. Well, obviously they will now from having to work in care, but yeah. they, they left school without anything. Um, and they've been some of the better workers I've come across. Um, but I do think, and uh, in one of your earlier podcasts, I think the second last one with the the two ladies that have started their own charity. Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah. They were they were talking about this. And 
it's that whole thing it links in with the care review also and it's that push for staff shouldn't be hired on the basis of qualifications but rather on values and practice and i think there's a mix there where values and practice are they're our heart of social work and care you know if you don't have the right values you're just not going to do the job well i I think in personal opinion um and if you don't have the values, you're not going to get along with kids. Like if a kid comes home kicking the doors and at midnight, you're not going to be able to manage that. Or mm-hmm. if a kid's having a breakdown because their parents haven't shown up to contact. And I hate that word contact, but it's habit. <laughs> so you're not going to be able to do those things. And if you've got a qualification, that's amazing because the academia backs you up on theory and it gives you the theory to reinforce your practice. But everything comes down to the values and the practice. You can learn the theories on the job. You can learn the different ways of working on the job. And you do. You learn from other people you're working with. So, yes, I think qualifications are incredibly important. And they set an example for the people we take care of and be like, well, you can you can leave school and still do the job. But if you get qualifications, you've got higher potential in life. So yeah. qualifications and again, long winded answer. Qualifications are important, but I think values should be put definitely before that. Okay, so. that's that's a, a really great point, and you, you make a good a good case for that. Thank you. So you mentioned you mentioned you know that the previous podcast or two it was Jade and Justine. Yes, and they were talking about hiring, how they hire, you know, what they look for in terms of care workers so in your opinion what makes a good a good carer and sometimes people don't like the word carer by the way no i know know. know, but but essentially you know what makes a good person to look after i just on a a side note i don't think you're ever going to win there because staff member sounds clinical carer sounds clinical the guy in my house sounds a bit creepy like so so, i um just joe or whatever or, or stevie or Oh, okay. that's, whatever it may be that's it know? yeah that's it uh-huh. so, um <laughs> but with respects to that role i think i think there's um and again to go back on another podcast john ryan he was talking about vulnerability i think there's a when i first came into care there was a few staff members i instantly clicked with and there was a few that i didn't just like when I was in foster care, there was one family I got on really well with. And there was a few that we just couldn't do each other like that, you know? And I think the thing was they were willing to let me in to their lives. It wasn't, they didn't come to work with the role of this is my job, which it was, that's absolutely a job. Like, let's be, we've got to be really clear about that residential care as a job, but it's also a passion, I think. And if you've not got that passion, you get burnt out really fast. But I think from my opinion a few of the things are vulnerability being willing to uh work with the young people to to build relationships um which i know most sta- most staff members or whatever you want to call them would do but some some don't um a realistic attitude towards life the fact that the young people you're working with are young they are teenagers they're going through transitions of puberty, never mind the transitions of being in care. And the fact that they technically, regardless of how much of a bond they make with the other young people in the house, they're living with strangers. They're living with other families. And there's a thing um, that I realized when I was in care is the, the whole relationship bonding thing, it goes two ways. So 
like you make the young young people feel good but they also make you feel good and if you don't have a realistic attitude if they do something you disagree with it could hurt you like as a staff member so like I moved away from care when I was in care I had the opportunity to go back to one of my parents that broke down and when I came back the relationship between myself and a staff member had completely broken because we don't know specifically but we think they felt betrayed um and that had just gone so I think there's that thing of vulnerability um flexibility and the realistic attitude the fact that they're teenagers you're going they're going to do things that might upset you and you need to be aware of your own boundaries so yeah um, on you go sorry no i was just thinking that's really i think that's for me with like the bit about knowing what you're doing comes in you know the bit about training yeah for example the three p's in social pedagogy can mm-hmm. help frame practice and you know makes it authentic but also enables you to have boundaries as a as a, a carer you know uh, and i think that's something that i've been thinking about quite a lot recently is about, about you know being a manager and the responsibility i've got for bringing new people in and making sure that they're not going to you know you know unwittingly cause additional harm and there's a real real responsibility there you know um but i, I was just i kind of cut you off there just kind of you know, is there anything else you were going to say in respect to that? No, no, it was a good cut off because actually, um, so I was going to say, I don't want to be, um, so when I was on the care review, um, the journey process, I was part of the love group. Uh-huh. And there was a big debate around this about how we incorporate love into care because it's such a hard thing to do. You can't, you can't mandate love. You can't force love. But we needed we felt we needed to create an environment where if staff loved the young person, they could love the young person and vice versa. You know, it wasn't that whole thing of you can't do this, you can't do that. And where I'm talking about boundaries, that's where that becomes quite hard because you want the staff member to be open and stuff, but you also want them to be careful. They don't get hurt and the young person to be careful that they don't get hurt by a staff member. So that was a whole complex thing in the love, the love group. But I think, it's still totally doable. You know, you can still have boundaries and you can still love a person. And I think that's an important balance to strike. And I think like you're saying about the three Ps, it's very delicate balance. It's a very fine balance, um, as you'll know from working in care, but totally doable. I felt loved in care. And I also, the, the one, several members of staff I've met again over the years, but there's one that I've stayed in touch with my whole life since care. Um, actually, I just seen him a few weeks ago, and he made me feel loved. But he also had this real knack of calling me on my on my crap. So <laughs> if I was pushing boundaries, if I was absconding and running away, if I was fighting with teachers in high school, which I'll be honest, I did. Um, if I was not doing my homework, you know, he would do the normal thing for for another clinical term. A house parent would do. Um, and he would pull me on it. He'd be like, you need to stop it. You're being, you're, you're not just pushing boundaries. Now you're being deliberately rude or offensive or, and I've learned from that, you know? So he had, he had boundaries where he still held the responsibility of a carer as, as the term we're using. Um, but he also made me feel loved. And and what do you think made that kind of magic happen? What was the the, the kind of, 
that that skill that this guy had, so that other people can, you know, learn for that. Draw on it. Um, you know, thirteen years I left care, and I've never reflected on that question. Um, mm. but I think, I think genuinely, it's that thing of um, thrown about. So that member of staff, he had a lot going on, and he. He, he held himself, he carried himself really well. But if he was going to be off, he let you know he was going to be off, you know? Like, he... And I mean, I know a lot of staff don't want the young person they're working with to be like, oh, I'm off sick, feel sorry for me or any of that, right? And they think that's a thing. But it's that whole thing of just being like... So, so you're a young person living in a children's home or a children's unit or a house, whatever you want to call it. And you see this person two, three times a week you look forward to them being there. You come home from school expecting them to be there. And then they're off for three or four weeks because they've had a mental health breakdown or they've got COVID or whatever it is, but they haven't told you. And there you re-enter straight back into survival mode. You re-enter back into abandonment mode because you don't know what's happening. And all it took really from him, he was off a bunch and he was, he was amazing, but he would tell me over the years, I'm off. Like, or he would phone the house and be like, look, the reason I'm not there is this. Not just me, other young people that he, was, he had bonds with, he would do that for them. Mm-hmm. So that was one thing. The strict sort of, well, if you will, parenting role that he took mm-hmm. on when I, when I was doing wrong or if I was pushing boundaries or if I was being a rowdy teenager, that helped. Mm-hmm. And I think his, he was the first person to be honest with me about care so when i went in on easter weekend they said they did the typical council thing of oh you're only here for a short while you're only here on respite and i'd been used to respite because i had respite and foster care before i came into residential care so i was like okay i'll only be here two weeks tops (laughs) the two weeks came oh it'll be another two weeks because there's a problem and then the third bout came and i was just like you know what it's not something's wrong and he was the first person to sit me down and go look you're probably not going to go home so, right. and that's a hard thing to do. And it's a hard responsibility to take on. Um, as I'm sure many of the people that work under you, as you've been manager, like yeah. I've probably experienced similar, but those things like his vulnerability, his honesty, I think, because like I say, and I've got a big thing about people need to recognize transitions are huge and difficult. And not just in care, just in life transitions, but in care, you're going through the transition of your puberty. You're going through the transition of living with strangers, all of that, that I mentioned earlier. And having some humans have this beautiful thing they do where they try and make you feel better by lying to you. (laughs) And that's not a fault. That's not a fault. That is a nice thing. You know, you're caring, but sometimes you just need people to be straight and honest with you. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I absolutely. And it's, it's, I suppose it's the way that's presented. You know, yeah. you, may, you you spoke about a few things here, and I'm sure the guy done it in a way that remained using the three Ps, um, didn't breach confidentiality, nope. and didn't traumatise you. You know, yeah. and that's something that with people listening to this, that f- for me as a manager, I need to, I always make sure that the people that I'm essentially supporting to support the, the, the young people know about the boundaries and yeah. you know if there's any sort of conversations needs to be had but we have them you know and that's really about you know the keeping people you know safe and looked after them really well 
So it's just I, I was just thinking, me and you have had a, a couple of crossovers in our, in our recent uh, time like in terms of various kind of working parties and been involved in various groups. And there's one we've been involved in recently is the, the stuff about physical restraint. Oh yeah. So this, yeah, I, I wrote a blog for Celsius. You wrote a blog. Mm-hmm. And done some stuff for the Scottish Physical Restraint Action Group. So I suppose the big question is, what's your thoughts on physical restraint and should it be banned? Well, as you know from being involved in that group, this is not an easy answer <laughs> at all. It's not. It's not black and white. It's. I thought it was black and white. I'll be honest. When Laura put out the call at the Circ conference, is it Circ? Yep. Yep. Sir, yeah. Still, sir. Yep. So sorry, When she put that call, I was like, "Yes, gung ho, let's do this. Get rid of it. Boom, it's done." And then I came into that group, um, just a few discussions, and I was like, "This isn't black and white. This is nowhere as black and white as I thought it was." And then it came to the time of writing the blogs, and by then, even just in that short time, my mind had changed. So, restraint. <laughs> I think restraint has its place and it. it can be very necessary with the odd occasion where you have someone threatening staff members with a knife, you know, um, or you have someone threatening themselves. Like, and I understand restraint then. Um, but I don't ever think staff should do it. I think, um, I think that the, the in my opinion, you should either get out of hours to come and do it or you should have the police do it because you still have to live with those staff members after they've restrained you. And you know how long it takes to build a relationship and how easy they are to break. And a few of my friends that I've met over the time in care, they, they've been restrained. I've never been restrained, and I quote, because I'm too big and scary. And they couldn't restrain me other than getting the police. But I have seen restraints happen and my friends have been restrained. And a few of them, most of them, as as has run at the mill, said they hated it. But a few of them said they really liked it because it's the only time they felt they were being held. You know, they didn't feel comfortable asking staff for a hug because it was frowned upon in the environment and all of that. And I don't know if that's still the case now with the frowning upon hugs, but I imagine quite a lot of that still is. So, yeah, again, with the long answers, I think restraint has its place. And I think as a de-escalation technique, it can be fine. Obviously, you need to try everything before that. But I wouldn't say ban it. Like, like John was saying in his podcast as well, banning things doesn't work. doesn't work. Like getting rid of things. Because then people are like, well, if we ban it, what do we bring in instead? And it's that whole thing of it it has its place it has its time but i don't think the people that work with those young people should be putting hands on them Mm -hmm. it's this it's that whole thing of we've the the recent the recent correlation i've drawn between it um we have banned parents in scotland from hitting their kids from laying hands on their children we've almost banned parents from being able to raise their voice to their children so as much as the staff members in our house didn't give birth to that child, they are their parents. They are their guardians. So why should they be putting hands on that kid? Like, yeah. um, and the thing is, a lot of the restraints I've heard of, and the one or two that I've seen, 
could have been de-escalated easily. And that was me as a teenager looking at them. And I know it's different when it's hands-on, but the, all the reflections I've had, I've heard, they could have been de-escalated. There was one or two where I understood the person had to be held down. But I don't think the people that look after you and who love you on a daily basis and who feed you and clothe you and get you to school should be putting you in such a compromising position. Especially, especially because, as we know, lots of young people in care that's a long, long answer again, I apologise. That's all right, Lawson, don't apologise. Lots of young people in care who come into our care aren't there through fault of their own. They're there for safety reasons. And a lot of the ones I, I grew up with had been beaten. They'd, been, they'd had a lot of really unmentionable things happen to them. So therefore, to have a person in a position of authority over their lives, who is technically sanctioned by the council because they're paid by them, to then hold them to the ground, which is traumatizing, but then the staff members are traumatized too. It's yeah, it's a very violent circle of traumatization. So yeah, and just thinking back to a podcast that I done with Charlotte Wilson for the Cairns Petra. Charlotte had with a Cairns Petra point of view had mentioned that you know physical restraint should always be the last resort, and you need to show all the different you know you know attempts to de-escalate and debrief and you know the lessons learned and how we can move forward with a crisis but in addition to that she was saying there's more severe forms of restraint out there so for example you mentioned the police yeah the police, the, the police turning up and you know physically restraining a, a young person and it's as we know it's control and restraint so it's like pain-based you know yeah. com- for compliance so for me uh, totally take on your point of you know of view and, and I think there's a real kind of strength there in respect to what you're saying about breaking down relationships it can it can break down relationships 100% in terms of trust but in my experience it can also support the development of relationships if it's done in the right context and that's the really key but here's if it's yeah. done in the right context um, so there's a lot of mechanisms to kind of think about and it can be thought about in a silo but I think there's an really, I, I on you go. Sorry, no, it's all right. It's on you go. No, no, I th- no. I just, I was just, you know, basically what you were saying. I think the reflection back, this kind of, I think that's what you know, I, what I've learned, you know. And but it's good to every one of these podcasts. I've always learned something. If it's something, and it's that stuff you're saying is is learning for me, and I'm sure it's learning for other people listening as well. Hugely, I think the only important reflection I would make before we move on is. I have not got experience of working in care. I've got experience of volunteering with people from all walks of care. I've been in um, foster care, residential care, kinship care, unofficial kinship care, and I've bounced around a lot, but I don't have experience of being a staff member. So as much as I can reflect on what I've heard from friends and what I've seen, I can't put myself in a staff member's shoes and restraint may have changed since I left as well. So those are just small critical points to my argument that um people listening should know. Like oh so uh, definitely and it's really I'm sure this will kind of spark a lot of thoughts uh, you know from people who are working in care or from that you know, academic perspective yeah. or indeed people who have got lived experience of care. Um so I, I was just kind of thinking of the care review. You've mentioned the care review a couple of times. What's your thoughts on 
you know, the aspiration in respect to, you know, the, the 10-year plan, do you think it will come to fruition? You know, is it the, just what they're hoping to achieve? Yeah. Yeah, I've been thinking on this for a few days. Um, when I first read The Promise back when it was launched, I will be honest, I felt underwhelmed by it. I felt like there was a lot of good discussions coming out of all the work streams, all the work groups that was then politicized into a political document that was watered down, in my opinion. But there does seem to be a lot of good underway already. Um, and the councils really do seem to be engaging with it. Um, now, just for context, for anyone from the care review who hears this, the only reason I felt it was watered down, I didn't feel there was any direct as many direct recommendations and as many direct uh, launching points as, a, 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 if that makes sense, um, for people to act upon. I felt it was very open to interpretation. And that was the problem with many of the reports we've had in the past is it was very interpreted. Um, no, I, I loved the care of you. I felt it was an amazing piece of work and I feel the people involved were really passionate and driven to get a lot of change not taking anything away from that or the work that is now coming out of it. I just felt the promise at the time felt a little too, um, a little too political, even though it's clearly a political thing. Um, but yeah, I think, I think, yeah, we're going to get the changes that we asked for. I mean, we've already seen the changes with the, the hearing system, haven't we? With the, the siblings um, and the yep. laws around siblings allowed to be involved, which, was a big thing for me because when I was younger, I was asked to stay out of my brother's hearings and stuff, even though I see myself, my, my mother and dad are still around, but I see myself as a big part of their raising as people. Yeah. And I was asked to stay out. So that was a huge thing for me when that news was released. <clears throat> um, we've already seen the, like, I know Glasgow have a working promise group. I know most of the authorities do. Um, just seems to be a lot of buzz, a lot of active want there seems to be a willingness to do the changes so mm -hmm. i think the majority even the not in the next 10 years will be done in the next 10 15 15 years yeah i think what what do you think i, I think it's very aspirational and again there's a lot of stuff that needs to you know run alongside that again we talk about silos and i think poverty you know we need to kind of look at you know what, what causes poverty and you know the economy needs to be stronger, needs to be more, you know, less stress in society, mm. and that will mean that there'll be less stress in households, and from that people will be happier, and you know there'll be less kind of family breakdown and and trauma. Yeah. I, I think it's 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 huge. It's a societal piece, uh, and the, the the promise is you know is, is going to be part of that solution. But I think there's going to be a real political will. Uh, and you know the, the economy needs to be strong. The yeah. economy needs to be really strong. People need to be working and have aspiration. And from that, you know, families will be happier, and you know it'll be less stress. That's my opinion. But you know, I'm certainly just a one person. You know, but <laughs> um, it's uh, we got a magic wand. You know, it's that bad. But we, we need to really try and make Scotland a really prosperous place to live. Yeah, we and do, we do that. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I think I would get behind your, you're saying you're just one man, but I think what you've just said is on the money. Um, yeah. Something that, I don't know if this is something I've misread or what from the promise, 
there seemed to be a lot of talk about changes in care, but there also seemed to be a lot of talk with people involved in the care, involved in the care review of getting rid of residential care. Um, and I've, that's still been a bunch I've heard since the launch of the review, as people just talking about how we need to do away with children's homes and stuff. But yeah. in my, my opinion, um, and it isn't just an opinion, um, is that we don't take young people, a lot of young people into care fast enough. Um, and I think residential care is a kingpin in our society that should never be removed. I think there's a lot of work got to be done to try and avoid kids coming into care, but there are children that need to just be brought into care without hesitation because they end up with sibling separation. They end up with um, all, all the issues that we know about mm. just because one social worker um, went, oh, we shouldn't remove them just yet. We should try and build that relationship. So I think there's a lot of people in our own field who debate whether residential care should be a thing or not. And just my thoughts on it is residential care should absolutely be bolstered and um, not, not as widely used as it is already because we use it for a lot of the wrong reasons, but it should still be used. So, yeah. Yeah, and maybe, maybe it, sh- it could look different, you know, within 10 years. Maybe it could, it could look a bit more like the European model, you know, maybe somewhere like Denmark or, oh, yeah. or Germany, you know, yeah. whereby residential care is, is a totally different kind of entity. Um, and maybe that's something we can think about for the future. But but right now, as you say, it's it's needed. You know, yeah. without residential care, where would children go? Um, and, and it's 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 really a, a key safeguard within the the welfare um suite of options we've got in, in Scottish society. Huge huge yeah. safeguard. Like um, and uh, without being dramatic, which I am I am naturally dramatic, but um, I've said this a lot. Like without residential care, I would be in jail because I didn't know who I was running around with or I would be dead. So there we go. For anyone listening that likes a bit of drama, that is Dave's drama. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I feel, yeah, um, we'll see where we are in 10 years with the changes. So Yeah, and that's the biggest accolade I think residential care can get. Sometimes it does save lives, you know. Um, so I, I suppose this is a good way to kind of ask about the, the question about currently... Certainly in Scotland, there's a lot of kick cross border placements happening, certainly within secure care and sometimes within the third sector as well. What's your thoughts on children coming from England or, or, or Wales or Ireland into Scotland to live here, you know, because there's maybe been lack of resource in England? Do you think? Okay. okay. Um, it's a tricky one because there's a lot of kids who have been sent here who are thriving, like, and they have the right to thrive. But then with respect to the secure care, we recently had that big controversy where there wasn't any beds left for Scottish kids. Young guy went to jail, young guy died. Like, so there's that whole thing of you don't want to be refusing people who can benefit, but I feel like the other countries should be putting a lot more funding into these roles because they're clearly utilizing them up here. So there's a clear need for them down there. And the, the other thing as well, not take, taking away from the, like them coming up here reduces our resources for kids here that need it, who then end up in Pullman or they end up in Corton Vale, places like that they shouldn't be. Yeah. Um, and the other thing as well is there's been a lot of discussion. I, heard, I listened to a podcast recently, um, Let's Talk Social Work, 
it's called um on it's run by Baswa. Um and they did one on county lines. Um yeah. and the threat that county lines um poses to young people and that's um for anyone that's not heard of that that is uh, young people moving bu- uh, boundaries so like um going from east Dumbartonshire to west Dumbartonshire, for example sorry to the Dumbartonshires. um <laughs> but it's that um that threat of um once a young person is in another authority all the responsibility transfers to another social work group or the police there but then the young person can come back and forth mm-hmm. so the thing <laughs> very entangled um, thoughts here um it removes the resources um from young people here that need it um it removes young people from anyone they know like the ones coming from wales the ones coming from england they're coming to a whole new country having to get used to the cultures here um making friends here and then they've already been removed from families and stuff down south. And then when they do get removed from secure, they're being removed from all the friends they've spent teenage years with. So it's just traumatization upon traumatization. And yeah, I just I'm not I'm not too sure how we how we deal with that, but I do think cross-border moves are wrong. Um I had a I had a cousin um who was moved from Glasgow to Newcastle and we haven't spoken to her in 15 years because there's that whole thing of she had to live her own life and she had to build her own culture there which yeah totally like that's how you survive but it's the same thing with these kids that are coming from secure from wales and stuff they think they come up here they develop a bit of a scottish culture they then have to go back home and yeah so i don't know i don't know um it's a very complex thing cross because of if a local authority doesn't have the resources like there's a few authorities up here that only have one or two children's houses. They can't accommodate all the kids they need to. So they all come to Glasgow. Um, but again, even just those small boundaries, that's a big shift. So I think I don't, I don't have a clear answer for you, Joe. That's why my, my answers are about tangled. but oh. I, th- I think it's a very, it can be positive because it can help people get away from dangers. It can help them thrive, but oh. it can also be extremely detrimental because it takes them away from everything they know. Yeah, and I think you mentioned earlier transitions, you know, and a bit about transitions are difficult. Yeah. And I suppose that kind of brings that together a bit of it. It's another example of transitions, you mm-hmm. know, and they're never straightforward. So I suppose on to the final question, and that's this is about transitions as well. So the question about the five years time question, <laughs> you, get, you get answered in an interview, you get asked in interviews. You know, to, to, to check out people's kind of motivation and stuff like that. But this question is more about you and your time, you know, your time for being in the care system, living yeah. in the care system. Yeah. And then you're, you know, now a professional, you're an activist, you are now studying a professional qualification. And in terms of five years' time, where do you hope to be? Well, qualified. And um, so, because I'm only just starting third year social work, I've got two years left, so I'll be qualified with a degree um, and hopefully I've completed my master's. Um, as we were talking about, there's the, a master's in conflict resolution that I, w- I would potentially like to do. But other than that, I think I would like to be working with um, either, either with teenagers um, and in care because, you know, there's obvious links there. Um yeah. 
or working in crisis zones. I feel like the last, I feel like our whole lives, there's always been crisis zones happening, you know, like places that social workers are needed around the world where they don't have social workers. Um, and I know it's not, I'm not a doctor or nothing, but I feel like that could still be helpful. Um, and there's a place for that. So I don't know, potentially working with teenagers in crisis zones even. Um, yeah. Trying to help them or t- there's um, the course that Celsius re- recently done about them, uh, young people traveling unattended, refugees mm-hmm. and stuff. So there's a lot of work around that that needs to be done. And I feel like it just doesn't get the attention that it deserves. So definitely working with teens because I think they're incredible and they've got so much to give to the world, but they're so, because they can be potentially terminalistic, shall we say, they get, they get easily dismissed. And they shouldn't be because they're incredible and they're the next, they're the next generation. So, but on top of that, I feel like young people in crisis zones are even more dismissed because you know they're told just shut up until we fix your life. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, listen, I, I think you know it's been a real education for me listening to your you know your points of view and you know, charting some of your your your, your own history. Uh, it's been I feel privileged to have have listened. So thanks very much for that. And, and and I'm sure a lot of people you know get lots of listening, and there'll be a lot of kind of I suppose chat off the back yet. So thanks very much, Dave. No, thank thank you for having me, and I, I hope I hope to the people listening that I've made sense. So oh, thank you, absolutely, absolutely, thank you. Oh, thanks, man. Thank you so much to David for providing his point of view. Lots of different points to consider, which has left me with food for thought. As always, please share this episode across your networks, and if you'd like to take part, please get in touch. Thank you.